0: This week, we'll be looking at how English turned into such a rich and varied language, a language capable of making the following exchange possible.
1: Mr Speaker, will you confirm that you actually have the power to order the fat bounder to be dragged from the dinner table? Order! Well, order! Well, order! First of all, order! I I haven't got the power... And I dislike that expression, which I will ask the Honourable Gentleman to withdraw, please.
2: Well, in that case, corpulent gentleman to actually... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Almost as bad.
2: Corpulent and right, Honourable gentlemen to, <laughs> to be brought here in a tumbrel, Mr Speaker.
0: The Labour MP, Tony Banks, searching for the right words to describe his parliamentary opponent, Nigel Lawson. If English has a delightful capacity for subtle expressiveness an ability to say one thing and mean quite another, it also has a capacity for bewildering density. Here is Gordon Brown, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, explaining, well, I'm not sure what he's explaining.
3: Now, our new economic approach does not simply require us to adapt to changes in the practical world. It is also rooted in changes in the world of economic ideas. The growth of post-neoclassical endogenous growth theory and the symbiotic relationships that people now understand.
0: As we saw in our first two programs, English has both benefited from and been complicated by its mongrel heritage. Successive waves of linguistic invaders, the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, the Norman French, have left us with a multi-layered language that is particularly rich in terms. No one actually knows how many words there are in English. The Oxford English Dictionary contains 615,000 entries, about twice as many as the largest French, German, or Spanish dictionaries. But in fact, if you add in all the terms that don't make it into even an unabridged dictionary like the OED, the proper nouns, the more obscure scientific and mathematical terms, then the number is very much larger, probably not less than three or four million. Indeed, it can be argued that there are too many words in English. After all, do we really need a word like glabrous when we already have hairless, or sternutation in preference to sneezing, or quotidian for ordinary. The wealth of synonyms and the fractional degrees of difference that sometimes distinguish them can be confusing, as the novelist Marika Kobold discovered when she began learning English as a young girl in Sweden.
4: I do remember my English teacher at primary school, who was also the headmistress, very early on teaching us the social nuances and that amused me because I don't think I ever come across that in any other foreign language I learned. You know that I think it's best children if you say lavatory and not toilet and I think English people really prefer if you say napkin and not serviette and I remember reacting to that even as a comparatively young child.
0: And do you not have that sort of thing in Swedish?
4: Not to that degree really. I mean one big difference is that um, you have more words, it's simply that. You have many more words in English than you have in Swedish. Um, if you look up at um, a thesaurus here, you'll find maybe three or four different words that describe the same thing, whereas in Swedish it might only be one. So you, you have a clumsier vehicle, really, a clumsier tool.
0: English is so rich indeed that we need all manner of dictionaries to capture it. Medical dictionaries, engineering dictionaries, computer dictionaries, since no one dictionary could possibly convey it all. Jonathan Green has spent much of the last few years picking his way through one of the more interestingly arcane areas of English lexicography, slang. Ironically, he finds it hard to define his own subject.
3: I find it very difficult to define slang. Um, etymologically, it actually comes from a Swedish or Scandinavian word which means throne, same word as gives a sling, and it's throne language. That is one of the theories. Another is it's that it's the language of criminals because it's the slang which means slangs actually mean chains and it's the rattling of the chains figuratively, symbolically, whatever. But what it really is, it, it, it's the language of... It's an alternative to the standard. That's what. That's how I see it. It's also a linguistic. Two fingers or one finger, depending on which country you come from. A gesture of disdain, thumbing the nose to, to the standard English. It's a release. It's a relief. It's enormously enjoyable. It's a very rich language. It's. It's so difficult. I mean, a word like. Tanner meaning sixpence, when we when we didn't have when we didn't have um, before decimal coinage, that was slang. Lots of people used it. They probably didn't even know it was slang, but it was. If I look at a word, if I look at a late sixteenth century mole whopper pace, I know that's slang. Mole means a, a, a scrubber basically. Whop means to have sexual intercourse, and a pace is standard English meaning fast. So what it means is you know she was is a girl who, I suppose, has sex quickly. I mean, um, that's slang. You would not use that in standard English. It is not formal. It is not polite. Slang tends to be impolite, I think. Slang also changes. If you look in 1711, when Jonathan Swift is writing um, a letter, which I shall paraphrase as something like for the reform of the English language, he is saying that mob is slang, that bamboozle is slang, that elisions like couldn't and wouldn't are slang, And those in 1711, as far as he was concerned, were slang. But this is a period when, shortly afterwards, Dr Johnson would define the word illiterate as not knowing Greek and Latin. It is very difficult with language. It it tends to be from various people's point of view. I'm amazed that um, a mob should ever have been thought of as slang, but in 1711 it was.
0: Was slang richer in former times? Was it more productive?
3: I like the old stuff, but some of the new stuff can be absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think harpic is wonderful. Harpic, which means mad. Why is Harpic mad? Harpic is mad because it's clean around the bend.
0: <laughs> one of the more indelicate areas of slang, indeed of language generally, is obscenities. But an obscenity today wasn't necessarily an obscenity in the past.
3: I mean, a very good example is a couple of good examples. I mean, it is, I mean, one is the word bollocks, which people I think would—it's used to mean rubbish in a relatively colloquial way, but on the whole. You know, when you get kicked in the bollocks or whatever it is, that's slang. Yeah. The interesting thing is that if you go back to a dictionary or a glossary, to be more precise, a Latin Anglo-Saxon glossary prepared by a man called Abbot Aelfric, which I think around approximately a 1,000 years ago, he translates, um, I think the word is something like testes, um, as bealukos, which means very obviously bollocks. Once again, there is the word podex which he translates as, well, he spells it A-R-C-E-H-O-O-L-E, which we know as arsehole. I mean, those words were accepted.
0: But to find the nerve centre, as it were, of the English language, lexical HQ, so to speak, you must travel to Oxford, to the headquarters of the world's largest and most revered collection of words, the great and noble Oxford English Dictionary. John Simpson, the OED's general editor, took time to show me around.
3: But we're now in the centre of the OED editorial department, which is largely open-plan. There are about 80 staff on either side of us. This is an area where there's uh, um, editors revising the existing text of the dictionary. Moving on over there, there's an area where the bibliographical group are working. Um, Etymology is a bit further along. There's a new word section somewhere as well. And when we have this revision done... It'll be completed by
0: 2010, according to the present schedule. So it's a, it's a long-term major international project. So how many headwords are there in the, in the OED now, and how many do you expect there to be in the revised edition? There well, are about um, a quarter of a million at the moment. I should think
3: probably 350,000. But uh, you'll be dealing with about a million defined terms, I expect. We're now in an area of the um, OED where people are working on the revision of non-scientific terminology and Olivia is one of the staff members who's working on particular parts of the alphabet at the moment.
0: And so what what exactly are you looking at here, Olivia?
5: Uh, well, recently I've been working on plant. Uh, in this part of the screen, this is where I actually do the editing. In this part, that's how it actually looks, how uh, we we'll, we'll look on the page. These are the tab-
0: In an atmosphere that seems to owe more to Silicon Valley than to the bookish world of academe, for there are no great piles of papers here, no teetering stacks of musty volumes, only a kind of clinical neatness, in this atmosphere, Olivia Duncan quietly works her way through boxes of note cards, sifting data provided for her by various specialist departments, scientists, etymologists, a news team whose members coordinate a database of citations sent in from readers from around the world. All this is needed to enable Olivia to revise the entry for the word plant.
5: Here you are. Now this, is, this is an extra sense of plant which, which news have added in. So it's to place a bomb in a building, especially as a terrorist act, or to place a kiss. And then that will then get incorporated at the very end into what I've done.
0: Right, I'm with you. That's okay. incredible. So <laughs> it is incredible. For you, how long How long does you,
5: it one range take?
0: Or, or, or actually one word? One, one
5: word. It can vary enormously. Uh, very often, long words look as though they're going to give you terrible problems. And they don't always... What causes the problems is if the senses are very close. It, it, it can be very hard to distinguish between them. Uh, I revised perfect a while back, and that took me a long time, about ten days. Really? Yeah. Um, because it was long and the senses were difficult to distinguish.
0: One aspect of English that often troubles people of an orderly bent is that it is forever changing. Words alter meaning over time, often diametrically. Nice, for instance, originally meant stupid or foolish. Then, at various times, it came to mean lascivious or wanton, extravagant, slothful, elegant, slight, precise and thin. Not until the 18th century did it take on the modern sense of pleasant and agreeable. Most words in English experience some drift in meaning. The technical term is catachresis, to the severe annoyance of those who equate change with decline. It has been this way for a long time, as I learned from David Dennison of Manchester University. People commonly feel that, that, that the English language is going to hell in a, way, at, at a at a rate that it never has before. Is that true?
6: nope. (laughs) And they've always felt that, you know, nostalgia ain't what it used to be. There there is no period of English that we know of when people were interested in the language at all, when there haven't been complaints about change. Um, I think the first real awareness of linguistic issues is around the time of Chaucer. Chaucer writes in manuscripts that he hopes scribes don't miswrite it because there is so much change going on. We go to the... 17th, 18th centuries, you know, the attempts to fix the language, to stop it changing, to, to resist change, to complain about terrible new words like fan and mob and so on. People have always complained about change. I'm not aware that it's, things are any worse now than they used to be.
0: The way words are used, the grammar and structure of a language, changes too. I asked David Dennison where the notorious stricture about not ending a sentence with a preposition came from. As far as I know, I think the received wisdom is that it was
6: Dryden, in revising some of his writing, unsure whether he should use constructions like the story of which I have been told or the story which I have been told of, did what would have been normal in his time, which is to translate it into Latin to see what Latin would do, found that in Latin you didn't normally strand prepositions at the end of a sentence and decided, well, in case of doubt, go with Latin, went through all his work, doing his best to revise to the new form, and that this particular um, stricture was taken up by the grammarians of English in the 18th century and elevated into a rule. Whereas, in fact, historically, the form with the preposition late is much older than the form where the
0: preposition comes right at the beginning. When such change can be seen happening around us, we tend to regard it as a retrograde step. I, for my part, wince at the loss of distinction between imply and infer, uninterested and disinterested, anticipate and expect. Any moderately discerning user of English will have his own list of bugbears,
2: Well, frankly, the problem as I see it at this moment in time is whether I should just lie down under all this hassle and let them walk all over me, or whether I should just say, OK, I get a message and do myself in.
0: The question, though, is to what extent we resist change in language and to what extent we accommodate it. John Honey is an educator and the author of a book arguing for a fairly strict adherence to conventions, what is generally known as standard English.
1: Standard English has been the method of communication amongst people of any kind of education for hundreds of years. If you didn't speak it, if you used non-standard grammar and peppered your conversation with non-standard vocabulary, then people could assume that you hadn't had a high degree of education. That expectation, of course, is now universal. So if people say we was or them thinks it's nice, we make a judgment about the extent of their education. It's the least educated people who show the most signs of using non-standard grammar, non-standard vocabulary.
0: Some people, however, believe that standard English is elitist, that it is used as a way of excluding non-standard English speakers from mainstream life. John Honey thinks the opposite is true.
1: Many linguists have argued for 30 years that one of the bad things about teaching standard English, white, Anglo-Saxon, middle-class speech, is that it is exclusive. It serves to exclude others. Quite wrong, says my book. Standard English is the only one that is not exclusive. All the others are exclusive. You and I can't learn black English. There are no textbooks. There are no linguaphone uh, recordings. Nobody is going to offer to teach us black English, and if we try to speak black English, it will be resented because the outsiders' attempts to speak a non-standard variety are usually regarded as uh, involving some kind of mockery or condescension. So they are the exclusive ones. The Lancashire dialect is exclusive. The Cockney dialect is exclusive. However hard you try, Bill, or I try, we're not going to be able to make it. And our attempts to do so will not earn us the thanks of those people who genuinely speak them from birth. It is the language of birth. It is the language of exclusion. Non-standard English. I want to oppose mechanisms of exclusion. It's the language, say the linguists, of working class solidarity, or rather council estate solidarity, or ghetto solidarity. And I say we should be trying in society to move away from the solidarities, the arbitrarily allocated solidarities of the mine, the pit, of the council estate, of the ghetto. We ought to liberate people so that they can operate at any level of society, in any region of society, not trapped by the speech forms which immediately identify them as only coming from there.
0: What about the argument that perhaps that's so, but what about the argument that, that in other ways they are richer or more expressive, that, for instance, in black street slang, Absolutely. by using a double negatives you get an additional emphasis. Yes, That we can't achieve in standard English. That's
1: right. Some of them have some riches, as you have mentioned. Glaswegian English, they have wonderful, humorous potential in Glaswegian English. Now, you've got all kinds of humorous potential in standard English, but here you've got an extra dimension if you can add that one. But what it doesn't say is that for a thousand common objectives of human communication such as arguing your corner asserting your rights gaining respect getting a job filling up an application form for all those purposes your non-standard dialect is going to be of little avail to you
0: in his shall we say livelier moments professor honey accuses academics like loretto todd of leeds university of a brand of dangerous liberalism, a willingness to distort and weaken English for the benefit of non-standard speaking minorities. In fact, as I found when I went to visit Dr. Todd, the chasm between them is not as great as all that.
7: I think you have to make it clear to children, and how a good teacher does it is not something I would want to interfere with, but you have to make it clear to a child that just as if they're sitting down to a meal, it is easier for them if they use a knife and fork on meat rather than a spoon. I mean, theoretically, you could use a spoon, but it's easier to do certain things. The Yorkshire form of English is no better and no worse than the standard form of English. But it is the standard form of English that is the international norm. And I suppose what I would say is the teacher must somehow be able to say to the children, the form that you're using is perfectly acceptable in your homes, it's perfectly acceptable in... um, the familiar circumstances in which you are but in terms of an education for better or for worse the form that you will be examined on in uh, tests and all the rest of it is the standard medium but it doesn't mean that you have to uh, tell a child that uh, his or her mother tongue the variety they use in the home is inadequate it may not be the variety to use in the educational sphere but it's not in any way inadequate
0: In Britain, far more than in other English-speaking countries, pronunciation comes into the equation. In America, how you pronounce words may fix you geographically. Here they fix you socially as well. As Laura Wright of Cambridge explains, it's a combination of words and accent.
8: You can't really... I mean, you can, but nobody ever does, speak Yorkshire dialect with an RP accent. How would it go? Um... Um... Yesterday, I was stuck in t- traffic jam, and I were stood at corner. I mean, it's artificial, mm-hmm. you know. was doing it the other way around, the inverse, you know, using standard English syntax and vocabulary, but with a Yorkshire accent. That's very, very common, because that then begins to correlate with the classes. So as a speech community, what we do is we judge those people who use say, I don't know, a Yorkshire dialect and a Yorkshire set of vocabulary plus a Yorkshire accent as being working class people from Yorkshire, whereas those people who speak a standard English syntax with a standard English set of vocabulary but a Yorkshire accent, we would judge as being more middle class. After all, you can get that on the regional news bulletins. And then those people who speak a standard English syntax, a standard English set of vocabulary and an RP accent, they are non-regionally marked. You cannot tell where they come from. They probably come from Kenya, you know, you Mm -hmm. can't tell. Because they're that tiny percentile of upper middle class and upper class people. I think it's estimated at something like 7 to 8% of the population. They're the ones who own all the money. They're the ones who went to the public schools. And for them, their accent is non-regionally marked. But for all other speakers, we're regionally marked.
0: Even at the more refined levels of life, a distinctive accent can sometimes be regarded as a kind of misfortune, as Loretto Todd discovered.
7: When I first started in Leeds as a young lecturer, one of the professors said to me, do you not think your accent would be a handicap? And my attitude was, as long as the students can understand me, How on earth can it be a handicap? I am me. I'm not an RP speaker. I am not from a particular uh, slice of English society. I'm not knocking those people. If that's your accent naturally, good luck to you. But it's not mine. And I mean, I am quintessentially a Northern Ireland person and tremendously happy with that. So why should I not make it overt in my speech?
0: There are those, like the comedian Arthur Smith, who have learned to capitalise on a distinctive regional speech form.
2: My brother and I brought up at a very similar time, and he's now the editor of the British Medical Journal and is a, an establishment figure. And he and I have similar accents, but his wafts a little bit more towards the classical like, received pronunciation, whereas I, as a, as a performer and comedian, have chosen a, a broader accent. I mean, we do sound quite similar, but there's no doubt that his is a bit posher than mine. And... You know, but he retains it. He was, once, uh, he was once invited to Buckingham Palace and his wife was in the toilet and I overheard two women speaking about my brother and saying, oh yes, that Dr Richard Smith, he's very nice, but he's rather gore blimey, isn't he? <laughs> if you know, The very first time I went on stage, one of the things about me was my accent. It was quite a strong accent, a strong London accent compared to most people. And so I would naturally choose that because that already was a sort of statement, that came as a ready-made statement that I was... You know, people make assumptions about like some sort of wide boy, a you know, bit of a lad, fast-talking, patter-merchant, you know. Almost the sort of man you see, you'd rather admire their verbal skills of selling, you know, ripped-off perfume at street corners. That kind of cockney-patter type thing. So I chose that because it was something to work with and against. But I don't think I did it consciously. I think I felt that I would be funnier with that accent or or more striking.
0: You must spend quite a lot of your life around people clearly who don't have a South London working class Mm. accent. Do you find that that just the the constant exposure to that rubs the edges off your own accent? I think it
2: does a bit, yeah. I, I used to say the word dull which maybe uh, the radio callers don't know what that means. It's uh, dull, is probably, and how I've ended up saying it. Because in the East End it was uh, dull, you know. Is you know, is my Cindy dull? And I found myself being not understood by people. So in the end I said dull. At some point I, that one I do vaguely remember consciously thinking, right, I'm going to say
0: dull. Or perhaps they were just puzzled because you had a Cindy doll. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's quite a common round my way. We're all very advanced. <laughs>
0: One striking feature of English is that we've never had a governing body like the Académie Française in France to try to regulate it. English just blunders along, or to put it more generously, evolves without restraint. Most people see this as a good thing. Loretto Todd.
7: My feeling is that you cannot pontificate changes. The, there's no such thing as the language in any case without people. And people will do with the language what they want to do with the language. It's, it's, change is a sign that a language is alive and kicking. I mean, Latin's not changing very much, but Latin's dead. I, I don't think we would want the same thing to happen to English.
0: I I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, um, I mean, I see looking around here that you have compiled and written books on punctuation, dictionary of English usage, and so on, which would seem to imply that you feel that these things are important and worth worth pushing
7: for. I think you've got to maintain the standard language. But I'm a great believer in saying every single speaker that I know has a range of Englishes. They have what an old linguist once called the language of slippered ease. When you can be yourself, you don't have to worry about your P's and Q's. That's a style. And then you've got other styles. If you're being formal you will use a formal style. And what I would like to say is that it's important for us to maintain the formal style for formal interaction. But To try and make people use the one style for every purpose would be the equivalent of trying to make us all dress in grey. What an incredibly dull world it would be.
0: Indeed. If there is one thing about English to be admired and cherished, it is its almost infinite capacity not to be dull. And that, I'm happy to tell you, is a subject we shall turn to next week.